1: We spent some time last week talking about this question. Are we a republic or a democracy? Are we something else altogether? The answer depends on what you mean by those words and how you understand our institutions. But we could say at least this. We have a constitution that claims to draw its authority from we the people, and it creates political institutions that are representative of us, the people, in varying degrees, By design, the House of Representatives is the most directly responsive to the people and the changes in public opinion are elected every two years. Then the Senate and then the presidency, where the number of electors in each state is equal to the number of representatives and senators from that state. And then finally and only remotely, the Supreme Court, whose members are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. We haven't really even talked about, and we'll table for now, the army of federal civil service bureaucrats who are not elected but who nonetheless wield enormous policymaking power. Now, a question related to all of this. How do we go about choosing who will represent us? And if we want our representatives to truly represent us and in our interests, is it a problem that money seems to buy influence in all sorts of ways? Would politics be better if we could get money out of it? And what does the Constitution have to say about all of that? The first question about money and its influence in our elections is the subject of all sorts of empirical scholarship, and the conventional wisdom that the person with the most money wins the election often turns out to be wrong. Just think about Michael Bloomberg's campaign spending in 2020. Bloomberg spent over a billion dollars of his own money on his own campaign, and he didn't get very far in the Democratic primary. Factors other than money explain electoral success. Still, there might be good reasons why we nonetheless want to limit the influence of money in politics and why we would want to adopt some policies to do just that. Scholars could look empirically at whether those policies are effective at actually limiting the influence of money in politics. And that's a separate question from whether any of those policies is constitutional. On the constitutional question, we don't really have a lot to work with. According to the Elections Clause, Congress may by law make or alter regulations about the manner of holding federal elections then the First Amendment to the Constitution says this, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And it's the freedom of speech and the freedom of association that bear directly on the question of campaign finance, of the regulation of how we raise and spend money in elections. When Congress exercises its power to regulate federal elections and tell people whom they can give money to, how much, and how much they can spend to advance a political message, does it matter if the regulations are aimed at outside groups unrelated to the candidate's official campaign, groups of citizens who raise money and spend it trying to influence elections? To get our bearings here, we're going to look today at the Supreme Court's controversial decision in Citizens United v. FEC in 2010. Before we do that, though, we need some background. There's a famous case called Buckley versus Vallejo that's important here. It was decided in 1976, and it pitted Senator James Buckley, the brother of William F. Buckley Jr., if that name means anything to you, against a member of the Federal Election Commission, Francis Valeo. At issue was a post-Watergate anti-corruption law that limited the amount of money an individual could give to a candidate's campaign for federal office, required public disclosure of campaign contributions, and limited the amount of their own personal money an individual candidate could use in a campaign. The court wrote several things in that opinion that are important for us here today. First, our right to organize together in groups and engage in political advocacy is protected by the First Amendment. As the court wrote, quote, "...the First Amendment protects political association as well as political expression." Second, some forms of political speech depend on spending money, and a restriction of the amount of money a person or group can spend on political speech during a campaign just is a restriction of speech. According to the majority, quote, "...this is because virtually every means of communicating ideas in today's mass society requires the expenditure of money. Distributing a leaflet, printing a paper, circulating a pamphlet, publicizing a speech, or renting a lecture hall, these things all cost money." And, quote, the electorate's increasing dependence on television, radio, and other mass media for news and information has made these expensive modes of communication indispensable instruments of effective political speech. Third, this isn't the end of the inquiry. Regulating the way people give and spend money on political campaigns is tantamount to regulating political speech. But such limits on political speech may be justified by the government's interest in preventing actual and apparent corruption which the court defines narrowly in this decision in Buckley versus Vallejo as quid pro quo corruption. I give you something, and you give me something, and we're explicit about that exchange. Taken together, then, the court in Buckley v. Vallejo allows for limits on the amount of money you can give directly to a candidate or directly to a political party. That might prevent actual or perceived corruption, according to the court. But the government's interest in preventing corruption doesn't apply when a candidate spends their own money on political speech or when third parties spend their own money on political speech in a way that's uncoordinated with any candidate's campaign. That doesn't involve corruption, at least not of the blatant quid pro quo sort. It's just somebody out there spending money to advance a political message. And it's what the court calls an independent expenditure. That left a lot of room for outside groups to spend their own money without coordinating with a campaign. That became the subject of the McCain-Feingold Campaign Reform Act in 2002, Act said, among other things, that corporations and unions couldn't engage in, quote, electioneering communications within 60 days of a general election or 30 days of a primary election. So the lay of the land leading up to Citizens United was this. An individual could give a limited amount of money to a candidate or to a party. Corporations and unions, however, were banned from giving directly to a candidate or to a party, and this was to prevent actual or apparent corruption, and the court is okay with that. Corporations and unions could, however, use their own funds to engage in issue advocacy, taking out an ad highlighting some candidate's record on labor issues, environmental protection, civil liberties, taxes, or whatever else it might be. But the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform bill said they couldn't engage in such electioneering communications in the days leading up to a general or primary election. It was designed to get rid of all those annoying ads that pick up right before we cast our ballots. And all that takes us to the organization and the case named after Citizens United. They were organized as a nonprofit corporation and made a critical documentary in 2008 called Hillary the Movie while Hillary Clinton was running in the presidential primary. They wanted to buy advertising spots for their movie right up until the primary election day, and that put them crosswise with federal campaign finance laws. Here's the ad they wanted to run.
0: Senator Clinton is claiming basically the entire eight years of the Clinton presidency, as her own, except for the stuff that didn't work out, (laughs) in which case she says she has nothing to do with it. She makes herself sound like she has diplomatic experience, like she has managerial experience, as as if she has policy development experience. She doesn't have any of those things. She does not answer questions. Uh, straight out.
2: I did not say that it should be done. You
0: said you said yes. No. You thought it made sense to do it.
2: No, I didn't, Chris. But the uh. point is, what are we going to do with all these illegal immigrants?
0: Unless I missed something. Senator Clinton said two different things in the course of about two minutes.
2: She's driven by the power. She's driven to get the power. That is the driving force in her life.
0: She is steeped in controversy, steeped in sleaze. That's why they don't want us to look at her record. Well, I think it's worth remembering, uh, after her health care fiasco, the Clinton team put it aside. I mean, certainly, you have to ask whether or not she's learned a lot from that experience. It was a failure. She knows it was a failure. It was a very embarrassing failure for her. She's a person who's struggling herself with figuring out who she is or, more importantly, how she wants to present herself to the American public. She's deceitful. She'll make up any story, lie about anything, as long as it serves her purpose of the moment. And the American people are going to catch on to it. I can't think of any other politician in history who has shown such a disrespect and a contempt for the Constitution and the rule of law as Hillary. And and I represented Richard Nixon's best friend, and uh, I knew Richard Nixon. And I'll tell you something, she's no Richard Nixon, she's worse. (laughs) Ruthless. Vindictive. Venal. Sneaky. Ideological. Intolerant. Liar
2: is a good one. Scares the hell out of me. I am sick and tired of people who say that if you debate and you disagree with this administration, somehow you're not patriotic.
0: And we should stand up and say, we are Americans and we have a right to debate and disagree with any
1: administration. At the time, the relevant provision of federal campaign finance law said no corporation or union could use its general treasury funds to pay for, quote, publicly distributed electioneering communications. That was speech advocating for or against the election of a clearly identifiable candidate for federal office that's available to more than 50,000 people at a time and is aired in the 30 days leading up to a primary election. So big media buys on television right before the election are prohibited to corporations and unions. You could create a separate kind of organization, a political action committee, that segregates funds from the corporation or union and use that to engage in electioneering communications but the corporation or union can't just spend its own general treasury money directly on campaign speech during these windows of time. Citizens United then sues the Federal Election Commission and argues that this aspect of federal campaign finance law violates its First Amendment rights to free speech. A majority of the court agreed, described the McCain-Feingold limit on electioneering communications during this window as a, quote, outright ban on speech backed by criminal sanctions. So the freedom of speech and the freedom of association protect the right of citizens to associate together in corporations or unions and use their money to advocate for political causes, so long as they're not coordinating their activities with a candidate's campaign or donating directly to a candidate's campaign. The alternative would be to allow the federal government to limit political speech by corporations, something the government conceded would allow it to prevent a corporation, including the nonprofit type like the ACLU, the NRA, or the Sierra Club, from publishing and distributing even books or pamphlets just before an election. And for a majority of the court, that highlighted its clear tension with the First Amendment. But what are the government's interests in preventing actual or apparent corruption? Remember, for the court, that means old-fashioned quid pro quo corruption, which remains illegal. And according to the court, independent expenditures just don't involve corruption, real or apparent, because you aren't giving your money to anyone. There's no quid, and so no quid pro quo. That decision was controversial, to say the least, and it was particularly controversial on this question of corruption, whether this would unleash a wave of real or apparent corruption in our politics and our elections. So I caught up recently with my colleague Jeff Milo to sort through some of this. He's the co-author of the new book, Campaign Finance in American Democracy, What the Public Really Thinks and Why It Matters, just out from the University of Chicago Press. The book looks in particular at whether campaign finance laws actually lessen the perception of corruption in our elections. And so we talk about that, but we also talk a bit about some of these background cases as well.
2: All right. I'm here with Jeff Milo, a professor of economics and chair of the Department of Economics at the University of Missouri. He is the author, co-author of a new book called Campaign Finance in American Democracy, What the Public Really Thinks and Why It Matters. Did I get that title right? Yes, you did. Well, thanks for joining us to talk a little bit about Your book about campaign finance and some of the background that makes your findings in the book interesting is the decision that the Supreme Court came out with in Citizens United versus FEC. And I wonder if you might just give us brief background of what do we need to know to make sense of Citizens United and what do we need to know about Citizens United to make sense of your book?
0: Well, uh, Citizens United is a case that has been kind of a a lightning rod for a lot of criticism of money and politics in the US. And uh, there is a lot of misunderstanding about what Citizens United actually actually did. So um, by way of background um, at the federal level, um, candidates raise contributions from individuals and from political action committees And those contributions are limited by law and corporations may not give directly to candidates, unions may not give directly to candidates. Um, However, um, the uh, Citizens United open things up so that any group can engage in what are called independent expenditures. And what's meant by an independent expenditure, this would be advocacy for against a candidate but done independently of any campaign. And so the Supreme Court in Citizens United in 2010 said that corporations and unions can engage in these kinds of independent expenditures. Um, And and since then, the law has been liberalized a bit more to allow uh, super PACs, which are political action committees that collect money from uh, a variety of sources and to pool that money and run independent expenditures. Um, That's a little bit of vocabulary there. Uh, But we have to kind of go back to the 1976 uh, Buckley-Vallejo decision, which said that uh, government can regulate political campaign uh, speech and contributions, but only for the purpose of preventing corruption or the appearance of corruption. And so the court has been fairly consistent in uh, defining corruption as quid pro quo exchanges of of money for favors. And that's why these independent expenditures that are run separately from campaigns are, are permissible, because they don't involve a direct contribution to candidates. So the court has drawn that distinction between a contribution given directly to a candidate and, and independent advocacy.
2: And so yeah, the Buckley versus Vallejo is William F. Buckley's brother, the senator from New York, Senator Buckley ends up suing the FEC commissioner uh, and arguing about these regulations. And then Citizens United, tell us who, what is the group Citizens United? What were they actually doing? What's the nuts and bolts of this case?
0: So um, quick little bit of background is that independent expenditures by individuals were always permissible. And it was kind of a gray area, whether a corporation or a union or a group could engage in independent expenditures. The Federal Election Commission interpreted federal law to mean that they couldn't. And so that was what was uh, adjudicated in Citizens United. Citizens United was a nonprofit corporation which uh, uh, created a documentary called Hillary the Movie. about. It was basically bad things about Hillary Clinton uh, who was a candidate for federal office. And, and so by offering this video on demand shortly before the Democratic primaries, it violated um, a law which prohibited um, electoral communications within 30 days of a primary. Uh, and electoral communication is one that mentions a candidate for federal office and can be reasonably interpreted as um, as campaign speech, um, and and so because this was a corporation that was uh, publishing and distributing Hillary the movie, it would be an example of a corporation engaged in campaign spending, which is prohibited. That's been prohibited by law since 1907, uh, with the uh, Tillman Act, and um, and so that went all the way to the Supreme Court, and uh, the federal government argued that, yes, indeed, they had the right to prevent the dissemination of books or movies if these were published by corporations or by unions, uh, if they mentioned candidates in a way that was construed to be campaign speech. And so that, you could imagine, might open the door to a lot of uh, potential censorship.
2: So there was a, an odd coalition that lined up behind Citizens United in that case. It included Sierra Club and ACLU, and I'm trying to remember who else, but there were other groups that were organized as nonprofit corporations who said, we actually would like to be able to disseminate information before elections and all of that. How much did the 30-day window matter? Could Citizens United have advertised their movie on the airways or on television in a way that advocated for or against a candidate for office, but done that? Um, outside of that window? Did, was it just that that time window that mattered or could they have done it
0: another so time? The 30-day the window was an artifact of the McCain-Feingold reform in 2002. And so the court had always drawn a very clear line between what is express advocacy and what's issue advocacy. And, and issue advocacy, that's not campaign speech and that's essentially unregulated we have free speech and free association and anyone can, can say whatever they want about issues and you can collect money from whatever group you want to run ads about issues. So for or against the minimum wage law, et cetera. The court historically interpreted express advocacy very um, you know, very narrowly that, that that would be communications that advocate for or against the election of a candidate. Uh, and so, and and actually use the words, you know, vote for, vote against, support, oppose. Uh, and of course, what you can imagine, so that kind of campaign speech has to be funded by money raised in limited amounts from individuals or political action committees, not from corporations, not from unions, so-called hard money. And so what was happening is that, you know, groups are always pushing the boundary, so We saw a lot of uh, interest groups um, running ads that would be a close substitute for express advocacy. So, not saying vote for or against, but saying, you know, tell Senator Schumer to support immigration reform and stop dragging his feet with scary music. and, And, you know, this is a close substitute for vote against Schumer. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so part of McCain-Feingold reform in 2002 was to say, you know, these close substitutes for campaign speech right before the election, either 30 days before a primary or 60 days before the general election, we're going to expand our understanding of what is campaign speech and what can be regulated. So within 30 days of the primary, in the case of Hillary the movie, that could only have been distributed... Um, using money raised from individuals in limited amounts. Uh, they could have outside of the 30-day window, because Hillary the movie didn't explicitly say vote for or against Hillary, they could have run that um, outside of that window. So it was a bit of a technicality. You know, If I had to guess, I think the group and the movie were, were all created for the purpose of challenging this law.
2: Yeah. And so thinking back at that time, if you were a wealthy individual and you wanted to buy some airtime on your own dime and at speaking as yourself, you could have done that. And if you had funneled that money through a specific kind of organization that was designed for political speech under the government's regulations, you could have funneled the money through that organization and run some political ads. But if you were organized as a corporation or a union during this time window, you couldn't engage in what they called electioneering communication and defined in a fairly broad kind of way.
0: Essentially, the the independent expenditures that an individual could engage in, they could spend any amount because it's not considered a contribution. But if you were giving it to a group that would then run the ad or produce the book, um, that would have to be raised in a limited and a There'd be
2: limited day. ways, but the group itself then could run the ad or, or produce a book. Um, I'm thinking outside I'm thinking of the 30-day window.
0: Yeah. Outside of the 30-day window.
2: Yeah. 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 window. And then what about a specifically organized political action committee or candidate campaign?
0: So those those could could um, they they if they raise their money in limited amounts from individuals, right. then they could have run the ad as well. So it was specifically because it was a corporation. Um, which which had produced the documentary.
2: Yeah, and so then the court, they're looking at this and they say, majority on the court at least, says that no, this violates the constitution, that the First Amendment protects your right to engage in political speech, that part of that is spending money in this way. And then I guess related to the Buckley versus Vallejo decision, it, it hinges partly on whether this avoids the appearance of corruption, is that right? How does that play into the decision?
0: So the the, um, court essentially said that this is an example of an independent expenditure by a corporation. So it wasn't in coordination with any campaign um, and and it was done independently. So if an individual can do that and that's not corrupting because there's no quid pro quo, then why not a corporation or a union that because it's already independent, that's enough of a protection against there being corruption or the appearance of corruption Um, And it it was just applying the same sort of reasoning to independent expenditures, which individuals could already spend unlimited amounts of money on to corporations and unions.
2: And then the decision, I remember when this first came out, we had kind of extreme polarized reaction to the decision. And you still hear Citizens United talked about all the time, but one of the things that it supposedly represents was the opening up of the, you know, the floodgates would open up and money would come into political campaigns and would be awash with money in the campaigns and that it would increase corruption or the appearance of corruption or the sense that money is buying elections and all of that. And I think this is really where your work steps in to evaluate some of those claims and try to look empirically at that. And I was thinking even um, about some of your work, but individuals spending money, this last primary Michael Bloomberg spent what, over a billion dollars of his own money in the primary and didn't go very far. And we see examples, seems like anecdotal examples, but all the time you can think of people who spend an enormous amount in politics and don't have much to show for it. So what has your work shown about money and politics, about what we can take away from that and about what people think about corruption and how campaign finance does or doesn't make them feel better about things?
0: Well, it's probably useful to start with, you know, because the Supreme Court has focused on quid pro quo corruption, rather than saying, you know, some people would argue, well, it's corrupt if some people have more influence than others. The court, at least the majority in the court, has never bought that argument. It's always looked for, um, you know, kind of a cash on the barrel head exchange of money for favors. And so by saying that regulations of campaign finance, they, they can't regulate the content of speech, but they can regulate who funds the speech. But they have to be narrowly tailored to prevent this quid pro quo corruption. One implication of that is, uh, you know, there are some kind of ground rules for reform. One is that government can't prevent an individual from spending their own money on their own campaign like Bloomberg did, uh, because you can't corrupt yourself with your own money. Uh, So we might think it's unfair, but that's not a rationale for for limiting campaign spending. Uh, Similarly, when it comes to ballot measures, so here in Missouri, we have ballot measures occasionally where there's a direct vote on a piece of legislation. Um, Any group can spend any amount for or against a ballot measure, because no matter how much advertising there is and how many contributions there are, that doesn't change the text of the ballot measure. So you literally can't corrupt it. Um, and, and so, um, you know, that helps understand where the court was coming from when it said an independent expenditure is not, is not corrupting because there isn't this direct relationship. You might think it's unfair. Um, you may, you might not like it, but the court has said it, it, you have to, you know, meet that high bar of preventing corruption or the appearance of corruption in order to limit First Amendment rights. So Citizens United, yes, as, as we said, it's definitely a, a lightning rod, but, but campaign reformers and critics of American politics are always prone to really, uh, you know, they, they have great thesauruses, they really use a lot of adjectives, and it's always, the sky is always falling. Um, and so that's one, one regularity for sure, but Citizens United definitely gets blamed uh, because it's going to allow corporations and unions to run independent expenditures. It turns out they really don't do very much of that activity uh, because sometimes it backfires and you may get consumer boycotts if there's a, if there's a firm that ran you know, pro-Trump advertisements. You can imagine there might be a consumer boycott or some repercussions of that. Um, and um, uh, you know, so that's one sort of discipline on that kind of activity. Uh, The other is, uh, you know, it's really more um, people who are ideologically motivated, who are wealthy, who are the ones contributing to the large super PACs that engage in independent expenditures. And so it's, 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 you know, it's not people, it's not corporations and unions trying to bribe public officials to change public policy. It's more like, wealthy and committed individuals trying to support their team as best they can. Um, and so you know when you look at George Soros or you look at the Koch brothers, you're looking at wealthy individuals that give a lot of money to political causes but for the purpose of pursuing ideological objectives and not trying to to buy tax breaks and whatnot and and so there is an extensive literature that looks at, the efficacy of both campaign contributions and campaign spending. And one of the things we do in the book is we ask the general public, you know, essentially the question is are elective offices for sale to the highest bidder? And about 89% of respondents say, yes, absolutely. You know, campaign spending really determines election outcomes. And uh, we also ask whether campaign contributions are effectively the the functional equivalent of bribes. And again, it's about 90% of respondents say, you know, absolutely. Uh, If you turn around and you ask people who study money and politics this, which we do in another survey of experts, it's more like 10% agree with that. And that's, I, I give that as just the shorthand version of the social science literature finds that campaign contributions, because they're limited by law, because the actions of political representatives are being watched by the media, by political opponents, and because legislation is produced by a collective, so no one person can really deliver on a promise, it's not really um, an effective way to try to influence policy by giving limited campaign contributions to people who can't do much by themselves. Um, And similarly, on the campaign spending end, most races are you know they're professional candidates that are well funded, endorsed by parties, and there's diminishing marginal productivity of campaign spending. So in most races, we're so far out on the flat of the curve, that production curve, that that more or less campaign spending by one candidate doesn't really affect the out, the outcome uh, very much. So um, m- 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 from the social science perspective, came campaign spending and campaign contributions are not as effective as the general public often often thinks. Um, But if you ask the public, you know, is politics corrupt, they will say yes. And if you ask the public whether we need campaign finance reform, they say yes. And then if you ask the public whether campaign finance reforms will change anything, they say no. Um, And that was kind of something that made us curious. Well, what does the general public mean when they say that money in politics is corrupting or American politics is corrupt? Is it the same thing that the Supreme Court means? Um, and, and what we found through a series of survey experiments um, and, and sort of drilling down is that you can give people different kinds of scenarios of activities of legislators. So vote vote trading or log rolling, most of the general public will say that's corrupt, trying to you know, uh, take a stand on an issue to get favorable press coverage. Most of the public thinks that's corrupt. Um, and and so it turns out the general public just thinks politics is corrupt in general. And all the more so if you present these scenarios as um, if you're a Democrat responding to the survey, it's a Republican engaging in these activities, then it's really corrupt and vice versa. So there is this... Uh, uh, partisan lens. In general, people are very cynical. They think everything's corrupt, and they especially think the activities of members of the other party are corrupt.
2: Um, so it would be accurate as you're thinking about this. Um, if if we go with the Supreme Court's definition of corruption, which would be a kind of quid pro quo corruption, I give you a campaign contribution, you just do something in return. And the campaign limits that you were talking, donation limits to candidate campaigns that you were talking about, you were saying that actually limits actual corruption, but it doesn't limit perceived corruption. Is that an accurate way to, to restate your findings?
0: And, and, and just jumping ahead, we actually test that proposition of whether campaign finance laws Um, I mean, there's some work out there looking at whether campaign finance laws have any effect on actual corruption by elected officials. The short answer is no. Um, You know, actual corruption is uh, already illegal, bribery and influence peddling. And and so additional regulations on campaign finance, it shouldn't be too surprising, don't have much of a, a marginal impact on that. But on the appearance of corruption, you know, if we had public funding, if we further limited you know, who could give money and how much money they could give. Would that change the way in which Americans think about politics? The way in which we test that proposition is is we use the states as laboratories because different states have very different regulatory regimes for campaign finance in their own states, So races for governor, races for state legislature. Some are very laissez-faire. Um, in Missouri, it used to be the case that anyone could give any amount until just a few years ago. Um, mm-hmm. In Virginia, Utah, Oregon, you don't have uh, limits on who can give. Some states allow corporations and unions to give directly to candidates. And then some states not only have lots of limits like at the federal level, but they also provide public financing for either state legislative campaigns or gubernatorial campaigns. So you've got a lot of variation across states and these state laws change over time as well. And so it's well suited to a kind of natural experiment where you you could say, well, let's look at survey data where people are asked their trust and confidence in state government over about a 30 year period, repeatedly people being asked in every state about their trust and confidence in state government and see how it correlates to the campaign finance regulatory regime and controlling for other factors. And again, the short answer is there's absolutely no relationship. Uh, There's no statistically significant relationship between state campaign finance laws and people's trust and confidence in their state government. And that's not surprising, given kind of what we've been saying for the last 20 minutes or so. And is it just
2: consistently low across the board, people's trust in their government?
0: Well, um, there are factors that influence trust. So people who are more interested in public affairs uh, or identify as Democrats or or Republicans are more trusting of government. Higher educated um, and higher income individuals tend to be more trusting of government activity. Um, But the really important factor is whether state government is controlled by your party or the other party. And again, this partisan lens looms really large in the way in which, so what people mean by corruption is, you know, people that I disagree with are corrupt. And in, in politics, we're never gonna get rid of disagreement, you know? So there is gonna be no campaign finance reform that causes Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell to become best buddies. Um, and And they're always gonna be in disagreement and always be casting each other's Motives as suspicious and corrupt.
2: So, as a as a final wrap-up question, if you were a dictator for a day, what kind of campaign finance regime would you advocate for?
0: Um, yeah, there's so much I could do if I were dictator. But how about if, <laughs> if we if we remain constrained by the constitution? I would say, you know, I think reformers, uh, campaign finance reformers, have made a mistake in demonizing campaign contributions. And, and even lobbying, because very few Americans give to political groups, and so what you're left with the the inequality in political contributions is is really skewed. Just a you know a small number, a small percentage of individuals give any sizable amount to political causes, and it turns out the the total spending. Per uh, voter, it were around $100 per voter or something. If, if more people supported the groups that they agreed with and supported elected officials, if, if you will, if there were more uninterested money flowing into American politics, it would swamp the amounts of money being spent by more interested parties and by the wealthy. And it would, we would take advantage all the more so of that diminishing marginal effect of, of campaign spending on outcomes and diminishing marginal effect of campaign contributions by encouraging more people to get involved, to support candidates they agree with, support parties and interest groups they, they agree with. Instead of demonizing these kinds of activities, these are kind of, you know, people are, when they get more engaged, they're more likely to act like a stakeholder try to become informed and care more about public issues. And I think those would all be you know, beneficial side effects of encouraging participation. And actually some reform groups have moved in this direction. We see in New York City and in Seattle and a few other localities, uh, what are sometimes called democracy vouchers. They go by a variety of names, but basically um, taxpayer subsidies to small contributions. Uh, so, in New York City, if a candidate raises contributions of say twenty-five dollars or less, there's a, there's a uh, you know triple match or quadruple match to that kind of campaign contribution, and it's a way to try to encourage fundraising from from ordinary people, and and so that might be the kind of change we might pursue rather than trying to clamp down on free speech and the funding of political speech to encourage more people to participate and and to contribute and to get involved.
2: Well, that's interesting. I love counterintuitive answers. So more, more people giving money in politics is a good solution to our problem. I remember George Will had a column a while back where he talked about the amount of money spent on a presidential campaign and everybody was pulling their hair out about how much it was. And he compared it to the amount of money Americans spend on potato chips in an annual cycle and it turned out to be roughly equivalent so it uh, isn't, isn't even, much this,
0: even this last cycle about 14 billion dollars spent on um, on the on federal elections it's about 0.03 percent of GDP over the two-year election cycle which, It probably isn't a lot for control of the world's preeminent superpower. Um, It it is less than Americans spend on Taco Bell. I'm I'm not sure about the uh, potato chips. Um, You know, so, so having some context definitely helps.
2: Right. Well, thanks for being with us, providing some context for campaign finance today.
0: All right.